You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. And he is Professor of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. And we are your hosts for Histories of the Unexpected. Each week we discuss a surprising subject oozing with unexpected historical significance. And this week it's sweat. Yeah. <laughs> which is all about Native American rituals of purification and late medieval death. No, it's not. It's all about capitalist exploitation and investigative journalism. <laughs> if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes subscribe to the podcast and tell all of your friends we're on twitter you can follow me at dr sam willis and you can follow me at james daybell and you can follow histories of the unexpected at unexpected podcast that's spelled p-d-c-s-t we are proud to be part of the excellent history hit network home of dan snow's history hit and other great shows coming soon and you can find out more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months show notes video clips photos of everything we discuss and much much more at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 27 of Histories of the Unexpected, where we will be audio googling through history, exploring the histories of things you didn't even know had a significant story to tell, like Cain's The Dog or Wine. Wine? And we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how simply everything has a history, and crucially, how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, that the history of the boot, the boot, is in fact all about the history of Italy and not just because it's shaped like a boot. And the history of crawling is unexpectedly all about <laughs> karma and Indian board games. This, I told you that and you don't believe you me. Did. Do you did. I have no idea what we're on about. The man sitting opposite me is the Muppet of early modernism. The Muppet of, er- of early <laughs> modernism. Slightly okay. insulting. Okay. Okay. It's and, James Daver. <laughs> And the man sitting opposite me is the queen of queries. <laughs> oh. It is Dr. Sam Willis. Yeah, I got you back. You did. Together, we will be piloting you on this uncharted and frankly highly dangerous flight into the past. Each week, one of us takes the lead. And this week, it's my turn. And it's the second in our mini-series, which was inspired by the Olympics, because we're doing blood, sweat and tears. We've done blood. That was fascinating. And now we're going to do sweat. And of course, this whole phrase, the quote, blood, sweat and tears, was made famous by Winston Churchill in the speech in 1940 I have nothing to offer but blood toil tears and sweat maybe we should do toil as well 
We've done blood. Blood took us all over the shop, didn't yeah, it? it did. And this time we're going to do sweat. Okay. I was really intrigued with how I was going to start thinking about sweat. And I want to know what your immediate thoughts My were. My immediate starting place with sweat is body odour. Yeah. We've done perfume. Yeah. We've done stink. We've done the history of deodorant. I noticed when you turned up here today, you were very sweaty. I was. From cycling across town. So sweat can be connected to the history of exercise, health, well-being. It can also be the sweat on one's brow. So it's connected to toil Mm. and work and working conditions. It can be connected to different environments. Visible sweating is interesting, isn't it? When it is connected to toil. So you have the opposite of it being professional, maybe being the prime minister and standing up at the dispatch box where you're not allowed to sweat. sweat. And sweating there is a sign of weakness, isn't it? Has that always been the same sort of cultural reactions to sweat that have changed? Cultural, goodness me. I bet there are. I have no idea. I hadn't thought of that. You've stumped me. But it's connected to the handkerchief, the handkerchief to mop one's sweaty brow. From what we know about the 18th century, I bet that sweating was much more acceptable for people in responsibility and professional people than it is now. Yeah, I think you'd be much less spun, much less sort of presented in a visual way like that. I mean, the thing nowadays is that politicians are on television all the time and you have access to them in a way that you wouldn't have had in the past. So you wouldn't have been able to detect people sweat in the same way like that. Sweat is also connected to fear. You know, the sweaty palms of people being nervous or fearful. And sleep. It really is, Mm. you know. Do you sweat in your sleep? I do. Gosh. Yeah. Comes and goes a bit. But, yeah, I I sometimes wake up covered in sweat. I don't know Mm. why that is. It's probably a symptom of something horrific. It's also connected to illness. You know, the body body naturally sweats in order to sort of, you know, increase temperature and get better. I love this idea about sweating in public, though. That really does interest me because in the 18th century i can think of loads of examples of people sleeping really important people sleeping mm. through cabinet meetings mm. Mm. and they decided they had a wonderful lunch a bit too much port and fell asleep it, was like, it sounds like a paper i gave at a local history society last weekend and it was in the afternoon session and half the audience were asleep <laughs> <laughs> i've done that i've given plenty of talks of people who are asleep so where are you going to take us with the history of sweat i'm going to start with illness oh with um, illness. yeah okay. with illness and particularly the sweating sickness is what I want to talk about. So it really begins late 15th century, and it doesn't even last a year. There are various outbreaks, 1485, 1508, 1517, 1528, and 1551, and then it vanishes. And it's been kind of a medical mystery. The fascinating thing about it is that you sweat to death. Yeah. That's what happens to you. And it was called the sweating sickness simply for that reason. There are other all sorts of horrific symptoms involved, but they're all a bit vague. It's kind of like stomach cramps and pain and headaches and flashing lights. Mm. But essentially, those are all the precursors to the sweat. The sweat comes on and then you are dead within 24 hours. It's quick. Really quick. Unlike the plague, for example, which is more drawn out. And there were lots of really interesting explanations at the time of where it came from, and now people struggling to explain it. There's some uh, arguments, some thought, that it's actually anthrax, and it was somehow to do with environmental change at the time. Others think that it came from an invading army, which had been in Rhodes, had been campaigning in Greece, right? which is vaguely entertaining just because it's hot there, and I was wondering if that was the explanation. (laughs) That they were sweating. (laughs) So so, so it it came across from the continent to England. Yes, there was a campaign against the Ottoman Empire in 
right, it rose in 1480. So that was one of the explanations for it. But it's one of these big mysteries, and I love a good mystery in history. Mm. And the mysterious sweating sickness, which accounted for thousands and thousands of lives. I mean, it killed 15,000 people in six weeks in one of the outbreaks in London. Gosh, goodness me. I have here some descriptions of it as well. More. So there's a description from the 1485 epidemic that you're talking about from one Thomas Forestier, and he writes... The exterior is calm in this fever, the interior excited. The heat in the pestilent fever many times does not appear excessive to the doctor, nor the heat of the sweat itself particularly high, but it is on account of the ill-natured, fetid, corrupt, putrid and loathsome vapours close to the region of the heart and of the lungs, whereby the panting of the breath magnifies and increases and restricts of itself. I mean, it's just a really visceral description of it. There's also another description by the French ambassador to the English court in 1528, so we're in the reign of Henry VIII here, and it's claimed that one of the maids in Mademoiselle Boleyn's chamber was attacked on Tuesday by the sweating sickness. And it goes on, the king left in great haste and went a dozen miles off. I mean, very, very sensible. He <laughs> doesn't away. want to be caught by this. Very brave man. This disease is the easiest in the world to die of. You have a slight pain in the head and at the heart. All at once you begin to sweat. There is no need for a physician, for if you uncover yourself the least in the world or cover yourself a little too much, you are taken off without languishing. It is true that if you merely put your hand out of bed during the first 24 hours... You become stiff as a poker. <laughs> that's incredible, incredible sort of medical opinion at the time. What, what period was that? 1528. 1528. So you know, yeah, we're sort great... of halfway through Henry VIII's yeah. reign, more or less. Very graphic description of it, isn't it? Goodness me. So the sweating sickness, that's fascinating. I want to know more about it. It's so vivid and for such a short period of time. It wasn't like one of these ones that sort of carried on. It must have left quite a scar I think, on people for a very, very long time. And I, I wonder how much people really made an effort to understand what was going on or whether they just felt relieved that it had th- just I come think, and it had vanished. I think there were attempts to understand it in the immediate aftermath. You know, and I think the quotations that we gave, I think that's part of that kind of trying to sort of grapple with it. And then it disappears. Yeah. And so it becomes less important because it's not around, you know, in a way that the plague is sort of continually popping its deathly head up. Can I take sweat in a different way? You can. Can I ask you a quick, do you like saunas? I do if I'm not hungover. Have uh, you ever been into a sauna when you're hungover? So when you're already dehydrated? I, I, I basically had a near-death experience after quite a really? heavy night out. Goodness me. And then I went and sat in the sauna. And, I, um, for as long as I'm... <laughs> I, don't, I don't like I don't I'm like saunas. I think they're, they're germy places. Yeah. Germy places, especially around swimming pools. But what I want to do is connect the sweat to the history of saunas. And from the history of saunas, I want to take us in another direction and go to Native American sweat lodges. Mm, okay. So if you think about hot rooms, sort of hot rooms, so deliberately making yourself sweat. And if we start by thinking about the steam bath or the steam room, the sauna, it has a pretty long history, can be traced back to ancient Greece, ancient Rome. You know, and you think about the sudatoria in ancient Rome and these buildings that would have been put up around hot springs and rivers. And, you know, these are sort of very communal places, you know, kind of like a cross between a sort of club, a gym and a shopping mall. In Turkey, they're also those kind of public baths are very well known. You think about the Swedish saunas that we have today. But I want to take us to the Americas and I want to talk a little bit about 
Native American sweat lodges. And I have a picture of one here. What do you think of that? There's a Native American sweat lodge for us. That looks like an igloo made out of animal skin. Yeah. That's essentially what so that it's, it's, it's a low, semicircular structure with some Native Americans standing outside looking quite proud of it. It's got the tunnel entrance. Yeah. And I'm assuming that's in the desert somewhere. It looks hot. It says hot to me. Hot. Don't go hot. in there. So this is a Native American sweat lodge. And you're quite right. It looks like a dome shape. And in terms of circumference, it's about... I don't know, 10 feet round in circumference. It's pretty low. You couldn't stand up in here. It's pretty compact, rather like a sort of medium-sized dome tent, Mm -hmm. something like that, probably without the height. It's about five feet high, and it's made out of a sort of wooden frame of branches taken from aspen or willow trees, and these are sort of lashed together. And then you've got the hides on the tops of the skins on the top, you know, moose, bear, buffalo. And as you can see, you've got an entrance here. If you have a look outside here, you've got a sacred fire. And in that sacred fire, uh, a number of stones which are heating up. And inside it, you've got a little pit. And this is an incredibly spiritual, sacred place that is connected with Native American spiritual tradition. And this is about purification. Did it work the same as a sauna then? You heated it, it up it and you went the same as the sauna. You went inside and the idea is that as the body temperature rose, so it kind of releases the sort of imagination and commune with the spirit world. So the way in which the entrance is facing is always to the east. So that has a significance and symbolism. And before you went into the sweat lodge, you would have basically purged yourself. So it's all about spiritual cleanliness. So none of this going into the sweat lodge hungover this well, is do you know what though i reckon the fact when i went and i was massively dehydrated anyway and the kind of the lightheadedness the effect of the heat and the sweating when you're already yeah. quite weakened is yeah. probably exactly what they were yeah, aiming yeah, for, yeah, yeah. Isn't absolutely it? yeah it might I, be closer I imagine, than you I think. imagine it has that same kind of impact on the body yeah but the idea is that you want to be spiritually cleansed so you sort of eat good things you avoid smoking you avoid drinking all of that sort of stuff and you you know as you go in you're sort of um rubbed yourself in various sort of sage and sweetgrass smoke. Mm. When everyone is in, you have the sweat leader, the doorkeeper, to drop the flap of it. So everyone is sort of contained inside. And they take these rocks, the stones that you can see on the outside, one by one, as they get hot, they take them inside. And this releases the stone people's spirits. And then I suppose as the temperature rises, people start you know, commune with the spiritual world. Yeah. And there's a speaking stick that is passed around. So it's very communal and people share their I wonder if there are Western descriptions by Europeans yes. of witnessing this or whether they weren't allowed into the sweat lodges. I, I assume they were quite proud mm. of them and they did let people in. Can someone find out and tell us? If I mean, they've got this from a sort of native American tradition. So this is indigenous peoples talking about their own culture. And I think that's absolutely sacred and valuable. But when um, you have these cultural contacts, what's fascinating yeah. about them is that you have two is the different perce- perspectives. Is the they could, they yeah. were right about yeah, yeah, something yeah, 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 yeah. completely different, yeah, yeah. even yeah. though they are in the same location yeah. doing the yeah. same thing. So it's different ways of looking at it, different sort of viewpoints, perspectives. Especially, I mean, especially if they actually have a yeah. shared tradition of it. So there yeah. is a shared yeah. Western tradition yeah. of Absolutely. going back to the Romans or, Absolutely. and further Absolutely. off. Heat and sweating and yeah. communal sweating, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. And what's interesting about this is that it is a sacred tradition. Yes. And I, I'm not, the spiritual I'm not world. come across that before. I went to a sauna in Iceland once. Right. And there was some culturally competitive sweating, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, Icelanders 
in the sauna, we turned up, there were a group of us, and I was quite young. I went there on a, on a ship. Who has the sweatiest armpits? Well, no, who could withstand the heat? Oh, and we went in, and it was oh, unimaginably yes. hot. So, like, some real pro saunas these people and they'd been doing right. it all their lives and I, I i could last you know less than a minute and there was a bit of <laughs> wry laughter as the english boys left after a minute like having to hang on to each other well and these guys were just in there as this burly icelander goes over to the water <laughs> bucket and comes in and tips another yeah you know, five liters of water over the fire to yeah. steam the place out so if there was an olympics sweating. olympics of competitive sweating my money would be on the icelandic the ice, yeah. so they're amazing <laughs> I, I bet the uh, <laughs> <laughs> Denmark and Norway give them a run for their money. So where do you take saunas? Where, or where do you take sweat next? Well, a completely different interpretation of the word sweat, because um, when I first thought sweat, I thought, oh, you know, sweating, just like we've been talking about. But there's mm. actually a really, really interesting way to take it, and that takes us back to the Victorian period. Ah, uh, I know where you're going with it. Um, I'm going to read you something now, all right? Okay. When was this written? <laughs> when it's busy, we work up to 60 to 63 hours. The conditions in the factory are not very good. There's no air circulation. The bathrooms are outside on our floor. Almost no one goes to the bathroom. They feel embarrassed. The bathroom is outside. You have to leave the factory, go to the hallway. It's a bit dangerous because anyone can enter the bathrooms. Also, there is a part in the building that is unprotected. You can easily fall into that empty space. Goodness me. Because you've asked me to date it, I know it's a trick. (laughs) And I'm going to give you a a broad answer. You know, hearing that, I think it sounds like sweatshops of 19th century England, you know, tenements of New York. Yeah, yeah, this is the realm of Marx and Engels. Or this could be certain parts of the world today, I imagine. 1998. 1998, whereabouts is... New York. New York, goodness me. And there are some other examples here of sweatshops, which are absolutely extraordinary. So in China, um, reports of these employees deducting up to 40% of a worker's pay for using the toilet more than twice a day. Gosh. And there's a sign here of a ruling posted in a factory in Indonesia in East Java. To all workers, a charge of 100 rupees will be deducted from pay every Saturday for the cost of washing the dishes used to eat meals at work. And the same place, workers wanting to wash before going home will be required to pay a certain amount of money and more will be charged two workers for parking their bicycles in the factory grounds. So those are modern examples. And I think for me, one of the most fascinating stories or sort of narratives is the history of sweatshops. Yeah, yeah. So that's where I want to go. So it's sweat connected to work, labour industrialization all those kind of big themes yeah. that we're used to in schools yes also it's globalization mass production yeah. industrialization fairness social reform inhumanity it opens up so many doors mm. it really is i think an extraordinary subject and one of the things that fascinates me about it is actually how we now know about sweatshops mm. because mm. they were unregulated they were hidden from the public eye and in that, I think it's a very interesting history. And you mentioned Engels, yeah. and he wrote his famous 1844, The Condition of the Working Class in England, which is yeah. based on his yeah. experiences in Manchester. But there are other examples of that. For me, it's fascinating because of this process of research, and you can see the world's opening up their eyes in the mid-19th century, realising there was a problem, realising that something actually needed to be understood, and the way to do that was to research it. It links wonderfully into the whole business of being a historian, I think. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. I've done a little bit on sweatshops as well. But this cartoon here, what do you make of that? That's an early depiction Okay, of sweatshop. you've got, oh, it's extraordinary, you've got a big, fat landlord 
kind of guy smoking, overseeing an army of skeletons who are all sitting there. Looks like they're making clothing of some sort. And it's interesting, isn't it, that sweatshops are all, certainly this period, they're all to do with making clothing. It's to do with clothing. Yeah. yeah. And it was piecework, wasn't it? Right yeah. Um, yeah. Before the factory system came in. So it was people being paid per item that they yeah. created. Therefore, the more they created, the more people making it yeah. make the guy in charge, who's the fat guy here with the cigar, more money. So what is this? So this is a punch cartoon dated from 1845. The guy there is sort of regular character Bubbles, and he, you know, he's there sitting on, you know, observing in a sort of portly manner, watching these skeletons, as you say, making clothes. You know, this is a very early depiction of a sweatshop. And in terms of thinking about the kinds of sources that we have for sweatshops, in a way, as a historian, you're thinking about how do you get inside that? You know, can you actually get at the personal testimony of somebody who is in a sweatshop? Or do you see it from, you know, how it's observed by, say, a literary writer or a political writer like Marx and Engels? Parliamentary committees would pull people in and question them about these kinds of things. That's how we know a lot about labour conditions throughout the 19th century. One of the sort of earliest works is a little book, Cheap Clothes and Nasty, by Charles Kingsley, written in 1850. And he was one of the first people to actually coin the term sweat Mm. to be used in terms of sweatshops. And I'll just read you a few little extracts from here, which, you know, what we're not getting is the people who are in the sweatshops, but we're having somebody who's outside observing them. Yeah. For at honourable shops, the master deals directly with his workmen, while at the dishonourable ones, the greater part of the work, if not the whole, is let out to contractors or middlemen. Mm -hmm. These are termed sweaters as their victims significantly call them, who in their turn let it out again, sometimes to the workmen, sometimes to fresh middlemen, so that of the price paid for labour of each article, not only the workman, but the sweater, and perhaps the sweater's sweater, and a third and a fourth and a fifth, have to draw their profit. And when the labour price has been already beaten down to the lowest possible, how much remains for the workmen after all these deductions, let the poor fellows themselves say. So it's this idea that you were talking about, the piecework, you're finding this piecework being passed out second, third hand, and everyone needing to take their cut from it. And the poor workers Mm. are the people who are you know, who are falling foul of this. And one of the things that really fascinated me about this as well is that the sweatshops get their name as sweatshops and it becomes known as sweating. Then you have the Anti-Sweating League, which is established yeah. in the early 20th yeah. century. Yeah. Now, what's really interesting about that and this whole process is that no one can agree on a definition of what sweating is. They know there's a massive social problem. Yeah. They're applying it to all sorts of different examples of workers not being paid enough and having to work in terrible conditions. But one of the things that I think fascinating is this inability to actually pinpoint the problem because there were so many different problems in different locations, whether it was the Anti-Sweating League in in Australia, I think, which is where it came up, or in the UK. And the best one I found was in 1888, the House of Lords, and they carried out an investigation into sweatshops and they came up with this. And it's a kind of an overarching acceptance and observation of the problem. Although we cannot assign an exact meaning to sweating, I like that admission, we can't say what Mm. it is, the evils known by that name are shown in the foregoing pages to be, one, an unduly low rate of wages, two, excessive hours of labour, three, the insanitary state of the houses in which the work is carried on. So there are just three. These evils can hardly be exaggerated. So they're identifying it as a problem, but Mm. government is, rather than actually being very specific and narrow about, like, a lot of these 
explanations are it's all to do with piecework it's all to do with people making specific items they've gone the opposite way they've said actually there's some big problems here and the people focusing on what they think specifically is sweating is only a tiny fraction of it and so yes we can focus on sweating and these minute examples of it but they knew in the 1880s that it was a bigger problem and we need to kind of, I think, open, yeah, yeah, yeah. Open, our, open our minds up to these much, much broader issues. I think also what we've done in talking around it like this, we're talking about it from the outside. You know, we're talking about it as a process. We're talking about it as a problem. We're talking about how to regulate it. What we haven't got at yeah, is what it's actually like to be working in those conditions. Yeah. That's more difficult. If we return to this Kingsley that I was reading from earlier on, we have a wonderful description there of... a. Uh, family actually living in these kinds of conditions and he says one sweater i worked with had four children and six men and they worked together with his wife sister-in-law and himself all lived in two rooms the largest of which was about eight feet by ten we worked in the smallest room and slept there as well all six of us there were two turn-up beds in it and we slept three in a bed there was no chimney and indeed no ventilation whatever I was near losing my life there. The foul air of so many people working all day in the place and sleeping there at night was quite suffocating. Almost all the men were consumptive and I myself attended the dispensary for disease of the lungs. The room in which we all slept was not more than six feet square. We were all sick and weak and loath to work. I mean, these are abominable conditions Mm. i mean and we connect this to the rise of the labor movement the rise of the trade unions the regulation of this so sweat is the way of getting into a different kind of sort of mainstream traditional history that people would be quite used to from school from university just from reading about the industrial revolution yeah it does take us down that way as you said the labor movement etc etc you can go straight into marxism and you can you can talk about all these massive issues i like taking it a slightly different way and it's still (laughs) to do with my interest in historical sources okay and actually i think one of the fascinating things is we've been talking about the horrors of working in sweatshops it's actually all to do with the history of investigative journalism so it's all happening in the 1860s 70s 80s right and so what else is happening then the invention of the camera Ah. Right, So it's all to do with photography, it's all to do with different types of historical sources, and it's all to do with people doing investigative journalism and saying, right, there's a problem, I'm not just going to sit around writing tracts and, you know, researching people's diaries or going to look what it is. They take photos... And they publish it. Now, these are um, images. Jacob Rees, he wrote a book called How the Other Half Lives in 1890. And it is the first example of investigative photojournalism. These are images of the slums of New York. Right. So it's called How the Other Half Lives. Basically, it's exposing life in the slums to middle-class, upper-class yeah. New Yorkers. Yeah. I'll just flick through a few of these photographs. Here we've got a young child looks slumped, being helped. He's lying on a pile of manure, it looks like. Yeah. There's a inside a tenement. I'll describe that. Oh, my God. Well, so this is a very, very cramped room indeed. Um, One, two, three, three four, four, five, six. six. Six people, and you've got a what looks like a metal stove right in the middle of it. You've got boots everywhere. It looks it's dirty. Got on it. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> this isn't your kitchen. No, about, no it's <laughs> no. not. But apparently I made no. stoves to take advantage of people in slums in Goodness New York me. in, but, in but it, previous it, life. But it's incredibly cramped conditions. You've got little sacks slung on a hook on the wall, which is obviously where people keep their belongings, all sort of 
crammed in there. Yeah, I mean, I mean that just are really of squalid disease media. And the yeah. one thing there is not there is a window. No, we, ventilation. We've no. done windows. These are it's all from the same book, How the Other Half Lives. I would recommend everyone to look at this because it's absolutely stunning. This is an alleyway near the Five Points area of New York, ah. notorious for its gangs and its slums. Gangs of called, New York. Called Bandits Roost. Right. And there they are causing trouble. They've got the washings that are strung up from this narrow alleyway. This is Mulberry Street, so just off the Five Points area. This is a coloured, you know, people are doing colorization of yeah. black. Yeah, Absolutely yeah. amazing, amazing image. And actually, it's interesting you mentioned Gangs of New York because this... <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. This That's is not Bill. It Butch. is. Oh, my word. Yes. Scary looking Proper man. Proper psycho. This is the original me. bloke who was in charge of one of the gangs, gangs of New York in the 1880s who was a butcher. And this is him in his butcher outfit. And he was the real life inspiration for um, Bill me. the Butcher in Daniel Day-Lewis character. Wonderful stovepipe hat. And he's got his saw in one hand, a long, nasty knife. I remember him using that in the and film. A cleaver. The cleaver. And he looks like an absolute <laughs> lunatic. Yes. So this guy takes his camera and he goes and he photographs the characters of the slums and it leads to all sorts of extraordinary things. There's changes in the law ultimately, Theodore Roosevelt gets involved, it really does inspire people. But this although it was a really impressive piece of investigative journalism and it was the first really powerful example of photo investigative journalism, Mm. it wasn't the first famous example of investigative journalism, which I am now going to tell you about, because this really I found quite extraordinary. This involves lunacy, mental institutions and secret codes. Brilliant. So Right uh, up my street. Bear with me. I'm just going to find this book now. This is a guy called Julius Chambers. So in 1872, he gets himself admitted to the Bloomingdale Hospital. It's an insane asylum, right? essentially. Now, this book is called A Mad World, and this is the book he wrote about his experience. And he starts off by explaining how he was commissioned to do it. Now, as I read this, bear in mind that no one has done this before. He's a journalist, he's an author, he knows there is a problem with insane asylums, and essentially this is what happens. A boy entered the room and handed me a telegram, which, without altering my position, I opened. A message in cipher. And it follows a long string of letters. It's addressed to him. He then works out the key to the cipher. The key was soon completed, the cipher alphabet beginning with the Q letter D. And so he then restructures out his alphabet to work out what the letter says. So it's a very simple form of cipher. I wrote the transcription at the foot of the cipher, supplying all double letters omitted, and started back aghast at the novel mission with which I was asked to undertake. And then he gives his reply. He simply says, yes, but we don't actually hear about what it was until a bit later on in the book. And we find out that the uh, part of the letter is actually, Dear Felix Summers, will you feign insanity? Enter Dr. Baldrick's madhouse as a patient (sighs) and write an expose. Right. And so he does. He gets admitted for sunstroke mania. Sunstroke mania? Yeah. Okay. He's and been sweating in the sun. He's been sweating Is this in the sun. <laughs> he's been sweating in the sun. And I'll just, just um, read a bit of this describing his first night in his cell because it's worth having a look at. The cell was more uninviting than any I had ever before seen, even in the lowest prisons. It was not more than six feet in width by nine in length and was without any furniture save a small iron cot with a straw mattress. It was only faintly illuminated when the door was open by the dull light from the hall, and as there was no transom over the door, I realised in an instant that the cell would be utterly dark as soon as I was locked in for the night. He then has his first night and 
it was truly shocking. I mean, he really struggles to explain just how bad it was. Mm. No means were ever resorted to which proved so effectual in breaking the will, destroying hope and inspiring madness, a solitary confinement in a cell. Then uh, there followed a night whose horrors, even to the minutest particulars, can never be forgotten. Left in the cell with my secret and my thoughts, I rose in my bed and gazed out through the gated window in order to get a last breath of fresh air. And it goes on. It describes the noises. It describes the horror of everything he had to go through. He was eventually uh, released after 10 days when it was proved that he didn't have the sunstroke mania. <laughs> um, but it led. he then wrote a report. It was published... And it led to the release of 12 patients who were not mentally ill, who had been locked up in this place, reorganisation of the staff, the administration, and eventually change in the lunacy laws. Uh, it was published in the Tribune, and that is the earliest example of investigative journalism. Brilliant. And we should do the history of madness. We should do. As well. Mm. The history of madness or the asylum. Yeah. The straitjacket. Or pretending. pretending. I mean, he's, he's essentially pretending. pretending, yeah. Yes. Lying. Wonderful. But where have we gone? We've got, well, we've gone from body odor to to sweating lodges, to sweating lodges to sweating shops, which is a different thing. To Icelandic saunas, sweating sickness, yes, and finally to investigative journalism. Brilliant. Yes. So do please get online and have a look at these photographs that we've been discussing because they're absolutely amazing. I think they've sort of affected me more than pretty much anything else that I've seen. Don't forget, you're the most important member of this podcast. So really, really get in touch, and we hope to see you again soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Bye. Bye. If you enjoy this podcast and you like learning about the past, check out my latest venture. It's called History Masterclass, and it's a new type of historical event where you can actually learn in person from the best historians around today in unique and stunning historical locations. You can find out more at thehistorymasterclass.com and follow on Facebook and Twitter at The History MC.